16. With that encouragement, let's look at Luke 16. Uh, yesterday, I, was, I went around to some of our Grace Kids families and some other folks, invited them to church, and for the most part, uh, received an excuse. Um, my, my granddaughter has a, uh, has a horse racing activity. Um, my kid has a baseball tournament. Uh, I gather for brunch with uh, other people. Um, you know, my daughter's going to her grandmother's and I have to pick her up. Uh, so there's, a, there's all kinds of excuses. And so you say, well, we encourage you, you know, just at some point, come. And uh, we'd love to, I even said, I did this specifically because I knew I was going to be preaching on this message, what happens after I die. Um, hoping that maybe that would, that would be the impetus for some to say, yeah, I'm curious about that. I asked Tom at Tim Hortons to come. I said I was going to be preaching on what happens after I die. And he said, I hope something good happens. This is a man who's been in the Methodist church for over 50 years. Can you imagine being in a church for over 50 years and the people haven't told you what happens after you die? We have Christians who know what happens after we die, and it really hasn't changed our priorities at all either. I would imagine that there's some Christians doing the same things today that some of the unbelievers were saying they're doing that kept them out of church, and it made me wish, and then I'm, and then I'm um, rebuked by our video today, but here's, let me just walk you through my thought process. It made me wish I knew what we were preaching on Luke 16, the picture of the two men in eternity. And what Christ does for us here, and I'll walk you through this, so bear with me, but what Christ does for us here is pulls back the curtain and shows us a glimpse into the afterlife. And I almost wished that I could have done that for those very same people. So, man, can I show you what, what the afterlife is? This, this is your destiny. And maybe that would change their feelings. And maybe if Christians, maybe if we today, instead of just announcing the Scripture and looking at what it says, if we could somehow view eternity and its reality, could we walk out these doors unmoved? And maybe we could. Because what we're told is, even if someone, at the end of this very passage, even if someone came back from the dead to announce these things, they still would not believe. It's recorded for them in the Scripture. Let them hear the Scriptures. So here's the bottom line for unbelievers and believers, both. If this type of lesson doesn't change our priorities and our actions, then basically what we're saying is we don't believe the Scriptures. I don't care. You prayed the sinner's prayer. You called yourself a Christian. You're a member of this church. I don't care about that. Because what we see here is so devastating and so true that if we, don't, if we aren't moved by it, then we really don't have a confidence in the Word of God. I remember someone telling me once that they never truly understood what Christ did for us on the cross until they saw the movie The Passion of the Christ. I just wanted to gouge my eyes out. So God's recording in the inspired Word of what Christ endured was not really real to you until Mel Gibson portrayed it for you on film. It shows a lack of confidence in what God says. Today, not that, I mean, every, every word of God is inspired, but what we have in Luke 16, 19 to 31 is exactly every word from the mouth of Jesus about what happens after we die. 
So are you ready to be challenged and changed by that? Because if you're just here to hear an entertaining 40-minute lecture, we might as well leave. Even my, I'm talking about myself as well. We, if we can't be changed by what we hear, then the purpose of the ministry of the Word of God is not doing anything. So let's let the Word of God really dictate. Uh, I, I was hoping we would see some people here who would need the message based on the fact that they're unsaved, and I, there probably are people in here who are unsaved. So I'm going to make that application, but we're also going to make an application for us as Christians. Certainly the greatest question that anyone should be considering today is what happens after we die. I mean, can you believe that people can live their whole lives without even thinking about this? Our death is certain. Remember the study we did on Ecclesiastes? It must have been three or four years ago now, but over and over, Solomon focuses our attention on thinking about life after death. Psalm 144 verse 4 says, Man's days are like a breath, they are like a passing shadow. James 4.14, our life is like a vapor. It's like an early morning fog that is here for a moment and then gone. So what we have the option to do is either deal with death, think about it, or deny it. Since we can't know about it, we don't really care. Just this week, I mean, this is, this is, this is so uh, pertinent in our day. Uh, sometimes on Twitter, it'll give me some, uh, some of the things that people are really talking about, and usually it's a very political or hot-button issue. And it was, I've never watched the show, but it was one of these late-night shows, and I don't even remember who it was, but they were interviewing an actor. They have some movie or some book coming out. And all, maybe the movie has this, I, I just caught the very clip, so I didn't research it all, but maybe the movie or book has this topic. But the late night host turned to the actor and said, what happens after we die? Here I am studying this. So it perked my attention. Of course, that's why I clicked on the button. What happens after we die? And the crowd, the audience started to laugh. I think for several reasons. Probably, first of all, it's an uncomfortable subject. But also, normally we don't ask actors this question. We might go to philosophers or university educators or maybe we go to our clergymen. Why are we asking this actor what happens after we die? His answer was this. I know that those who loved us will miss us. The audience went like this. Oh, first they went, oh, you know, how they, oh, that's so sweet and good. And they clapped and clapped and clapped. Will the people who love us miss us when we're dead? Sure. But what hope is there for the person who was watching that late night show dying of cancer? What hope was there for the person in the audience who's struggling with a long-term disease? What hope is there for any of us who are dying just to know that these people might miss us when we're dead? Well, what about me? Where do I go? What happens to me? Can you believe that people don't want to think about this? But we can't ignore the question today because our passage in Luke hits us straight on as Christ gives us a glimpse behind death, a peek into the afterlife that really should shake every one of us. Probably 35 years ago, I sat in a pew down here at this church and heard a message on hell. I don't know if it was this passage or not. But I came home very afraid because I did not want to be in this existence forever. Now I see the passage as a Christian a little differently, and so the application for me is different. But I hope that whatever the case is, that the Lord will speak to us through his word. Let's start with this. Five points today. Number one. Point number one is there are two people. Each of them will start with the word two. First of all, we have two people in the story. So that's point number one. Jesus begins this story. Some people think it's a parable. Some people don't think it's a parable. And the reason it, people don't think it's a parable is because Jesus never names people in the parables. But he names one of the guys in the parable. 
He describes the two main characters. Let's look at them first. Just, just be very quick. We'll get to the next four. First of all, we have the rich man. The rich man is described in verse 19 as a man who's clothed in purple and fine linen. He's clothed in dyed clothing, which would be made from the smashed up innards of snails. And then clothing would be dyed. This is something that rich people would have. It tells us that he had fine clothing and fine foods. And he also tells us that this was an everyday occurrence that this was a constant experience for this individual. He always dressed in fine clothes, and he always had fine meals and wine, everything that he wanted. He has what the Pharisees in the previous chapter, or previous, yeah, in previous, this chapter, but previous to this story, what they loved, and that was money. Verse number 14 of chapter 16, the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard these things and ridiculed him. And he goes on to tell a story about a man. It doesn't necessarily tell us that he loved money. The only we got to be really careful not to read things into this. It just tells us that he was experiencing the, uh, the effects of his wealth. Okay, The Bible never tells us money is wrong or that money is sin, but that loving it is. So all we're going to start with is describing, as Jesus does, this rich man. Fine, clo- fine clothes, fine food every day. The second person is the man who is given a name. His name is Lazarus. It's Eleazar in original language, and this is a very popular name. This is not the same Lazarus that we know who was raised from the dead. This is just, Lazarus is a very common name. Jesus either was talking about two real people, or he was using a name that was very common. And it tells us about this guy, that he was actually laid at the gate. This may mean that he was paralyzed or lame. It may just mean that he was struggling, but it tells us that he was laid at the gate of the rich man. I would say that this indicates that the rich man knew Lazarus, wouldn't you? If he was laid at his gate, if someone is laid at your gate, you must realize that there's someone there. And the only thing that we can kind of imply is that the rich man didn't pay much attention to him. Jesus doesn't go any further than that. Jesus didn't say the man hated him or ignored him. It just just doesn't look like the man did anything. And we'll talk about that in a minute in a callback. It tells us also about Lazarus that he's covered with sores, whether these are boils or ulcers. It is some sort of skin issue. In fact, dogs actually licked those sores. It tells us also that unlike the rich man who enjoyed fine food all the time, that he desired just to have crumbs that might fall from the rich man's table. This man actually experienced life as a dog. That's what our dog does. Goes around the table hoping for scraps, right? Licks strange and weird things. That's what this man is experiencing, okay? One was, if we could summarize the two people in this way before moving on to number two, one was enjoying life, the other enduring it. The existence of the two men in this life were completely different. It might be similar to Bill Gates walking in a city and walking by people who are laying on top of those heating grates that the subway kicks out heat. This is the same type of experience. One has everything he desires, the other only pitied by the world because he has nothing. So Jesus sets this stage by introducing these two people to us, and we go on to point number two. Two destinations. Two destinations. What we learn about both of these characters is that death does not play favorites. Death comes for every person. The death of mankind is the proof of God's judgment upon sin. Romans 6.23 tells us that the wages of sin is death. Romans 5.12 tells us that death passes to all men. Every one of us will need a funeral. 
Every one of us will need a burial plot. Should we, I mean, we'd be cremated. We need an urn. We need someone to carry us to our final resting place. And that is what happens in the story. Note, verse 22, the poor man died. Verse number 22 towards the end. The rich man also died. Rich people die, poor people die, white people die, black people die, women die, men die, kids die, old people die. You know what the death rate is? 100%. Everybody dies. It's another aspect of the prosperity gospel that is absurd, is it not? I mean, if these guys believe that God wants us healthy, wealthy, why does anybody die? Well, 120 years, why not 600? Why not 1,000? Makes no sense. Man will experience three different types of death. Man experiences, of course, as I just mentioned, physical death, which is a separation of our souls from our bodies. We cannot discern when that happens. It is not when we're brain dead, clinically dead, when we stop breathing. No one really understands that moment when the soul departs the body, but that is the moment of death. Man will also experience, by that I mean mankind, spiritual death, which is also separation, but it is separation from God. Spiritual death occurs in this life as well. Spiritual death is not something that we are waiting for. It is something that everyone is experiencing. They live their lives apart from God. Martin Lloyd-Jones says that no man can know God apart from Jesus Christ. No man can communicate with God apart from Jesus Christ. No man can experience God apart from Jesus Christ. And so because of that, everyone is facing spiritual death. When I went yesterday and knocked on the doors of Bapa Valley to the people that we love and care for their children and want them to come, every one of them, just like me, is under the threat of physical death. The difference between those folks and me is that I am no longer under threat of spiritual death. I have been given spiritual life because of my relationship with Jesus Christ. You have as well, if you are rightly related to him. And I don't want to assume that any of you are, just like you should not assume that I am. We should all be examining ourselves at this very moment to make certain that that is the condition that we are in, rightly related to Jesus by faith and repentance. But I said we'll experience three types of death, physical death, separation from our soul, from our body, spiritual death, which is separation from God, and the third death is eternal death, which is separation from God forever. There is no cure for that. Physical death cannot be avoided, but God has provided a way for us to miss the others. Hallelujah. And this is the message that we carry, the message that many of us embrace. When people die, what happens to them? There are all kinds of opinions in the world. Everybody's searching for something. I did a little, after I created the lesson, I did a little uh, video watching, just Googled what happens when you die, just to hear what people have to say. They're talking to a philosopher about this science fiction business, about if a bus is about to hit you, maybe your particles uh, experience fission or fusion, one of the two, where they all divide and the, and the body stays and the spirit just kind of science fiction goes wherever. Proclaiming themselves to be wise, they became fools. The Bible clearly tells us what happens. There is no question. There is no doubt. Jesus tells us. Let's make a couple of initial thoughts first before we talk about these two destinations. First, there is existence after death. There is existence after death. We do not go into an unconscious soul sleep. We do not experience annihilation, which is the idea that we are destroyed and our existence ceases as if the case before we were born, right? It, it's amazing to think that there was life on earth before you were born, but there was. 
There will continue to be life on earth after you die. And you will exist somewhere forever. I like to say it this way. There is life. There is life after life. And there is life after life after life. Here's what I mean by that. We are experiencing which one of those right now? Life. We're all experiencing life. We are headed to life after life, where we'll exist somewhere forever. And my personal understanding from the Scripture, we're not even getting into the Scripture yet, we'll get there in just a second, is that we are going to go to one of these two destinations. But then, the life after life after life is when God, through Christ, calls everyone to the throne where we'll be judged. Sheeps, sheep, excuse me, will enter into His presence. Goats will be banished from His presence. And then we go into the life after life after life, which is all of eternity in one of these two destinations. There is existence after death. Second, there is two possible outcomes. There are only two, I should say two and only two possible outcomes. There is a wide path, there is a narrow path. There is a way that leads to life and there is a way that leads to destruction. In this passage, there are two outcomes. There's no purgatory. There's no Shirley MacLaine reincarnation wheel where you come back as a chipmunk or a crayon or an oak tree. You die and you go to one of these two places where you will spend the rest of eternity. What are the two destinations that are mentioned? Look in the Bible, please. The poor man died and was carried by angels to destination number one, Abraham's side in the ESV. In the King James, which many of us grew up with, it's Abraham's bosom. Okay, That's one destination we'll talk about in a moment. The rich man also died and was buried, and in second location, Hades. So we have these two destinations. We have Abraham's side, which in the Old Testament is also known as Sheol, S-H-E-O-L. And Jesus himself on the cross said, Today you will be with me in paradise. I believe those places are all the same places. There is some disagreement on this. This is what I personally believe the Bible teaches. Hades is also in the Old Testament known as Sheol or the grave or the pit. We often read in the Old Testament how people, are die, people die and are gathered to their fathers. One of these places, Abraham's side or paradise, is the destination of the believing dead. And one of these places, Hades, is the place of the unbelieving dead. So every one of us will be off to one of these two destinations, but there is a caveat to this. I don't know if you've read or you believe something different in regards to this. It doesn't change our faith, but this is what I personally believe. I believe from the time of Adam and Eve to the time of Jesus' resurrection, everyone who died went to this place called Sheol. But there were different experiences for these people in Sheol. One was a pleasant place. I don't believe it was in God's presence. I, again, I may be wrong, and I'm open to interpretation, but that's what I believe it was. But it was, a, it was a special, it was a, it was a pleasant place, Sheol. And then the other side of Sheol was Hades, which was an unpleasant place, a place of punishment, a place of torment. So I would imagine that people like David, Moses, Abraham, the rest of these went to this pleasant place known as Abraham's side, known as paradise in the Bible. But when Jesus rose, I believe there's a passage in Hebrews and Peter that tell us that he went and preached the gospel. It doesn't mean he gave opportunity for people in Hades to repent, but he proclaimed his victory 
and that side of Sheol was emptied. And all saints in the Old Testament now are in the presence of God. So when believing dead die, they do not go to this place called Abraham's side anymore. Because we know that the Bible says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So the two destinations now that are in existence are heaven and Hades. We're not talking about hell, we're talking about Hades. This, it's still a place of torment, a place of anguish, but these are the two destinations. We, upon our death, I shouldn't say we, the believer, upon their death, go to be in the presence of Christ. So these are the two destinations, and it's best to put it this way. We either go into the presence of God at our death, or we go away from the presence of God at our death. There is no holding tank where we, where we wait it out. There is no, as Rob Bell says, the opportunity to repent in hell where God's love will eventually win everybody over. Understand this very clearly. It is heaven or Hades. One person has said, and I really believe this, I don't know where they got their stats or information, but I can buy it based on the number of times I've had conversations with people. For every one person who admits that they're going to hell, 120 believe that heaven is their destination. I can buy that. I can almost think that it's more. In other words, you would have to go out in the community and talk to 121 people before you found one person who said, yeah, I'm probably going to hell. I think that's pretty accurate. Most people think they're going to heaven. Let's think about this. There are two destinations in the world. Uh, excuse me, two destinations for all people who are in the world that they will enter into upon their death. This is what happens after you die. You go to one of these two places. The individual I was talking about uh, to you uh, this yesterday, I said, what happens after you die? He says, well, I hope something good and then I said, well, don't you know Jesus Christ? You say, oh, I've always known that. Well, then why don't you have the confidence? Okay? The reason that most people believe heaven is their destination is because they have been deceived by Satan in one of these two ways. They either believe in universalism, and there's two aspects of universalism. I believe there's two thoughts of universalism. The first is, is that everybody eventually will end up in heaven. Even people who go to Hades or hell will eventually end up in heaven. This is the idea of the book Love Wins by Rob Bell, which is absolute dead-on heresy, which says that in hell, God's love will eventually win out. Like God is too strong and too powerful and too loving that eventually everyone will repent. Like Hitler? I mean, anybody who's ever shook their face in the fist of God will eventually say, all right, God, you know, I, I am sorry. After millions of years, they'll finally enter into heaven. That's the idea of universalism, that hell will not be occupied by anybody for eternity. The other idea of universalism, and I believe this is what most people buy into now, is that hell is only occupied by the worst of the worst. That hell is occupied by mass murderers, by child predators, by the Hitlers, Ben Ladens, these type of people that have taken lots of different lives. But it's certainly not occupied by grannies, and it's certainly not occupied by uh, you know, young college kids that died that didn't really have a chance. Rob Bell and Clark Pinnock are very strong promoters of this, saying if you believe that a God would send you to hell for sins committed in a few short years, right? You, you commit a few, a few sins in the few short years that you have in this life, and then you end up spending eternity in hell. Rob Bell calls that an awful doctrine. 
Clark Pinnock calls it something that should be avoided and not believed, even though that is what the Bible teaches. Satan has deceived people by believing everybody goes to hell. This is why out of 120, I would almost think it's 1,000 that say they're going to heaven because they believe that good people go to heaven and they see themselves as good. The second way Satan deceives people is to tell them that there are other ways besides Christ. That Christ himself is not the only way, that it's not faith and repentance that leads to salvation, but it is good deeds. It is a religious heritage. It is a ceremony. It is baptism. The clear key from Scripture is this, is that what determines our destiny is whether or not we personally believed in Christ and repented of our sins. Most people I talk to and share this with say something like this, I've always believed. I've always been a Christian. They will readily agree with the things that I even say about Christ's death on the cross and our sins. But their belief is equated in James to demon belief. To understand the truth about God, demon theology is 100% correct. They know exactly what it takes to get to heaven, yet none of them will be there. It is true belief and true repentance that determines our destiny. We must acknowledge our sin. Agree with what God has said about it. Abandon all other hopes and trust Christ alone. Our repentance must be real, not simply a worldly sorrow. People who have truly done this and truly understand what Christ has done, they live a life of complete commitment to Christ and in self-denial. That is what is necessary for salvation. That is what determines the destiny. I mean, uh, I mean, that's critical. That's critically important, right? Has everyone in here considered that? If your life was to end today, what would be the destination? I wish we could take a minute just to dwell on that for a minute. You must believe Christ. You must truly repent of your sins. And I believe that there may be people in here who are even deceived about their own salvation. Third thing, there are two people, there are two destinations, and there are two experiences in those destinations. The focus of the story that Jesus tells now focuses totally on the guy in hell, right? We, we, all, we forget about now Lazarus. He's, he's in heaven. He's enjoying himself. Jesus, in fact, spoke more about hell than he did about heaven, and yet modern-day preachers ignore this subject. What has happened in Lazarus? Let's just make a quick mention of it because Jesus does. In verse number 22, it tells us the poor man died and he was carried by angels to Abraham's side. And then we skip down and we see in verse end of verse 23 that Lazarus is at Abraham's side. And verse 25 is the only glimpse we have of what Lazarus is experiencing. There's just one word to describe it. Abraham said, Abraham is speaking to the man in the flame, which we'll come back to in a minute, the rich guy. He says, remember you receive good things in your lifetime, Lazarus, bad things. Here's the only thing we have about him in heaven. Now he is what? This is middle verse 27. He is, er, excuse me, uh, middle verse 25. What is the word that describes what Lazarus is experiencing? Comfort. That's the only thing we know. Comfort. The experience for a believer after this life is comfort. 
I was going to read from 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 today. You might jot that down in your notes and read it this afternoon for your own edification. But the idea there is that when Christ comes, he will repay, he will give rest to those who have been hurt in this life, who have not enjoyed good things in this life. They will receive rest. The only thing we know. Satan also likes to deceive us by presenting false ideas about heaven. Now, there's not much in here about heaven, but let me just say what Satan's false ideas about heaven are. The first is, don't even think about it. Don't imagine what heaven is. Don't think about heaven at all. We've said this over and over that people have said, that person's so heavenly minded, they're no earthly good. That's nonsense. We should be heavenly minded. In fact, Colossians 3 says, set your affection on things above, not on things of the earth. Seek those things which are above. Be a heavenly minded person. When it says seek those things that are above, the word seek there is described in three other places that gives us the intensity by which we should be thinking about heaven. Seek is used of Herod when he's seeking out Jesus to destroy him. Seek is used of the woman in Luke 15 who is looking for that lost uh, pearl, lost coin. Seek is used of uh, uh, the parents of Jesus, Mary and Joseph, when he's lost in the temple and they come back and seek him. How is Herod seeking the baby to destroy him? How is Mary and Joseph seeking their lost child? How is the woman seeking the lost coin? They are seeking them with urgency and with passion, and yet Christians walk around with their head in the clouds or focused on so many stupid, worldly things that they don't think about this curtain of heaven being pulled back. They don't care that their neighbors are going to hell, and they do nothing in this life to show that they are committed to Christ. Nothing. Yet they're Christians because they prayed the prayer and they're going to heaven. That is absolute nonsense. Satan deceives people. Don't think about him. Don't think about those things. Get involved in 4-H. Get involved in whatever else and pour all your time into that and waste your life. Not me. And I trust not you. Second thing, Satan likes to, likes to uh, tell us that heaven will just be all about our indulgences. Whatever we liked here, we'll enjoy to the 10th degree there. You like ice cream? There'll be a Sunday bar in heaven. You like golf? Hey, the greatest back nine up there, right? You like science? Who likes science? But whatever, if you like science, you'll enjoy that there. And the third is that hell is, or that heaven is boring. All we're going to do is open up the hymn book and sing every song. People who are not excited about doing that here, what makes us think they'll be excited about doing it there? Christians who can't find their way to church now to worship God, but want to go to heaven and have unending worship of Christ? Makes a ton of sense to me. I don't have any time for Christ in this life, but I want him in the next because I don't want to burn in hell. I mean, I just say, I can't know for sure, but man, is that person a Christian <laughs> who doesn't enjoy the things of God in this life but wants him in the next? Let's look in on the rich man because this is where the focus is. The, the, the Lazarus is comforted. The rich man is in anguish. Verse 24, he says it himself, I am in anguish. In verse number 25, he, he, Abraham agrees. Yep, you are in anguish. Verse number 28, he calls this a place of torment. The one who had fared sumptuously and worn fine clothing and had uh, everything that he ever wanted constantly is now desiring for a lame, boiled-covered man's finger to touch his tongue with a drop of water. The enjoyments in this life fade and are fleeting. 
and this man is in anguish. Verse number 24 describes how so he is in flames. I believe that hell is a literal place of fire that does not consume what it burns. Why is hell such a place of torment? This is the quote from the man who is experiencing it. There are three types of torment. There's, of course, the physical torment. That's normally what we think about. Every time I built a fire in our wood stove when we lived in Lapeer, I thought about that. I thought, man, this is so hot, I can barely get the next log in. Can you imagine what hell is? Our minds tend to go to that physical torment. But there is also mental torment, and we even see it here in the passage. In verse number 25, Abraham says to the rich man, Child, remember. We don't forget in the afterlife. The Bible isn't clear on everything, but it's clear that this man had memories. He remembered his brothers. He remembered, he was told to remember that in his life he had good things. And I wonder if also he remembered that there was opportunity for him to repent. Let's make this clear too. The rich man is not in Hades because he's rich. He's in Hades because he did not believe and repent of his sins. And the Lazarus is not in hell because he was poor, or in heaven because he was poor. He's in heaven because he obviously repented of his sins. We take the whole gospel and apply it to this passage. Physical torment is bad. Mental torment, I wonder if people remember the knock on the door. I wonder if Jerry and Vanessa and these other people who I spoke to this week remember, oh, that pastor came and invited me to church and I ignored it. I wanted to go horse riding. I wanted to go gardening. I wanted to go to brunch. And now they're in Hades forever. I mean, you talk, that's, that's some pretty bad... Sorry about that. That's some pretty bad mental torment, isn't it? Sometimes uh, we went to Chili's uh, Friday night. My kids are all over the world. Guam, North Carolina. Max is at a North Carolina resort, this wedding that he's at this week. Britta's in Switzerland. I thought, well, at least we can go, go out to eat. We go to Chili's. I always get the chicken. And I talked to my waitress. I said, should I get the chicken again? I always get the chicken. She said, no, I'll get something else. I got ribs. And I didn't, I, I didn't leave thinking. But, but could you imagine if, the, and the ribs were good, but I, for the point of the illustration, let's imagine the ribs were terrible. And I walk out the door, and here's what I think. I should have got the rib. I should have got the chicken. I should have got the chicken. Why did I do that? Think about the, the pain that, that would have caused me for the next 30 minutes. Now get the point. The regret that these people are facing, the mental torment. I should have responded to the gospel. Right now, I've given the gospel about as hard as I can give it because I believe there's people, I believe there's children, I believe there's teens in here who don't know Christ. I believe there's adults in here that possibly don't know Christ, and I'm giving it as powerfully as I can. You say, oh, yeah, I got that. I knew that. I prayed that. I did that. Whatever. And then in Hades, will it be possible that you will remember these very moments and say, why in the comfort of that beautiful building on that beautiful Lord's Day did I not respond to the gospel? I was much more curious about what my friends were saying and, and how I would be treated the mental torment that will dog you for eternity, I believe will maybe even be worse than the flames licking your body. Worse than that is the spiritual torment. The best part about heaven is what? God's there. Christ is there. The worst part about hell is he's not. 
Can you imagine for all of eternity being separated from the God who made you and designed you to have a relationship with him and you are without that relationship? And the sad part about it is most who go to hell continue. The Bible says weeping and gnashing of teeth. It could be there that they're actually gnashing their teeth in anger, in rage over what God has done to them. That's not the experience of this rich man. One final statement about the experiences. A couple weeks ago, I was talking to my class about hell. We were on a different subject, but we were, we were kind of getting to the end of the school year and we are doing doctrines. We were doing end days and end times. We started talking about hell and I just kind of opened the question. I said, what do we know about hell? What do we know about hell? And they immediately mentioned all these things. Fire, separation, all this. And they didn't mention the one thing about hell that's the worst thing about it. What, obviously, the worst thing about it is God's not there. But what is the worst thing about that defines all of this? What is, what is the worst part that defines all of what we discussed? Never ending. Never ending right? You can sit through a violin recital, a third grade violin recital, and you're like, but, you're, but, you're, but you know it's going to end. I use the illustration with the kids, like, look at the clock. You know that at 9.15, this class is over, right? And if it's 9 o'clock and you're bored to death, you know that, hey, 10 more minutes, 15 more minutes, it's over. No clock in hell. No calendar in hell. No end date in hell. I can go to my dentist lady, who I like to talk to. She asks me about the church, <laughs> scrapes up the teeth. And, and when she gets the toothpaste out, you've been to the dentist, right? When she gets the toothpaste out, what does that mean? We're almost done. The bad part was over. Okay, just do that. Then she gets the floss out, and then she sits you up. <sighs> None of that in hell. None of that. You're not counting the days. I'm counting the days till Allie comes back in Guam. I don't have a real count, but I know that you know, we're five months down. She'll be back in six months. Like, there's an end date. There's something to look forward to. Nothing to look forward to in hell except more of the same torment. And it's all rightfully so because in this life, you're given the opportunity. You reject God. Your sin against the holy God demands that infinite, eternal punishment. And that is where you will remain forever with no respite, no break, no, no 10-minute coffee break. All right, let's step back for a minute. Let's turn the heat down. Let's let God visit for a while. None of that. It's eternal. Verse 26 tells us that it is fixed. Circle that word in your Bible. This is fixed. There is no hope. There's a gap. There's a chasm. No one can change destinations ever. This is the urgency of the gospel. You could walk out today, trip on the step, fall in the road, knock your head, have an epidural hematoma, and be dead tonight. And the opportunity is now. Do not wait. I can't imagine. I can't imagine. I praise God. He has saved me from that. 2 Thessalonians 1 says, they are destined for everlasting destruction. That, that word means to be, not to be consumed, but to be punished with torment forever. There's no annihilation. They'll wish for annihilation. They'll wish to be put out of their misery. Matthew 25 says, Hell, Jesus, everlast is, is a place of everlasting fire. There's no end. There's no relent. There's no escape hour. It's like the criminal who commits several murders and is given five life sentences, right? You're going to go to jail for 314 years. No, it's never going to end. That, in a sense, is what is happening for those who are cast into hell. Now, consider that for a moment. 
This eternal existence has no change. Yet we're worried about offending our friends with the gospel. I can remember several occasions since we've been at this church where I have talked to friends and family of someone else who was concerned for their family members and told them the true gospel and they got mad. They got mad because their friend or their family member got offended. I can think of three times that that has happened. That the Christian person who asked me to talk to the person got mad at me because their friend got offended because I said, hey, you could be going to hell if you do not respond rightly to this gospel. I mean, stop dancing around the subject with your friends and family. Why do we do that? Why do we do that? I'm not saying be mean or unkind or angry. I'm passionate right now. I'm not angry. But to say to really plead and beg with these people, like, do you understand the truth? Who cares if they get offended? What good is the continuing relationship? I mean, I'm not saying offend them for offending them's sake, but if the truth and the gospel offends them, I mean, would you rather they be in hell and, and say, man, I wish, I wish Andy would have told me what he knew about the gospel. He never told me. You know. I can't, I can't imagine. Two requests. This is number four. Two requests. Okay, so we had the two guys the two destinations, the two experiences in those destinations, and then the true requests, and they both come from the guy in Hades. Again, we're continuing to focus on his response because that is what the Lord does. Let's, let's start him with the two letter M's, okay? What are the two requests he makes? The first request he makes in verse 24, what's the letter M that he asks for? Mercy. Give me mercy. We've already discussed that. Put your, put your finger on my tongue. I just, I just spilled water on the floor when I smacked the thing, and there's a little... You can even kind of hear the squeakiness of it. People in hell would like be lapping this up, right? Just, just, that's the idea. That, oh, just a drop, just spill something. Like the man desiring in this life crumbs to fall off the table. Those in hell are just wishing there could be a downpour. Never comes. The second, we already talked about that. So the second request he makes is in verse 27, 28. He said, okay, so since I can't, since I can't get out of here and, and not going to get any mercy, then I beg, here's the second request, I beg you, send him, send the poor guy, Lazarus, to my father's house, for I have five brothers. He may warn them, lest they also come into the place of torment. I said letter M. What do you think? He asked for mercy, now he's focused on what? Missions. <laughs> this guy's the best missionary there is. Better missionary probably than many of us. His desire is to go have someone tell his family. He has passion and urgency. Folks, we have stacks of cards that say Grace Baptist on them that go unshared. There's, it is so easy for you to go online and share a Facebook post that I put online so that your friends and family will see those. I'm not, I'm not trying to berate you, but it's been very rare when someone has come to me in this church and said, Andy, why don't we go out on visitation and talk to some people about the Lord? That's hardly ever happened. Why? We have about 35 to 40 families represented that children, their children come to our church. Have you gone to their homes? Have you talked to their parents? Have you shared the gospel with these people? If you have, fantastic. If you haven't, 
that's what I want you to feel convicted about. When people walk into this building of their own volition, they come in. We have that occasionally. I wish we had it more. We don't, we don't need to jump on them and, and harass them, but invite them to lunch, discuss with them the gospel. They came here on their own. We pray for it. Lord, send some people. And then someone comes, and we virtually ignore them. Share with them the gospel. Take these cards. Take some tracks. Make some calls. I can't do it all alone. We need you to take the initiative and be like this man who cared for his brothers. And he uses a great word in verse 28. This is what missions is. It is a warning. That is what I'm doing right now. He says, send that they may warn. Not coddle, not dance around, not argue, not debate, not cajole, but to warn them about the fixed destination of everlasting punishment. To say soberly and seriously to our friends, neighbors, and even acquaintances, hey, do you realize what will happen to you if you reject this message? Last thing. Thank you for bearing with. We're almost done. The two men, the two destinations, the two experiences, the two requests, and finally, the two solutions. What are the solutions then? What are the applications? The first solution is Moses and the prophets. Okay? The scripture. The scripture. In other words, this is where the solution is found. Okay? The solution is found in God's word. And it is not our responsibility to convince someone to hear the word, but it is our responsibility to at least share the word, to give people the opportunity to respond to that word, right? How beautiful are the feet that share the good news. This is, goes hand in hand with what we talked about this morning. It's not miracles. And in fact, look what the guy says. Someone could rise from the dead. Someone could rise from the dead and say, hey, I just came back from heaven. And, and this, we've had this. We've had this, not we've had someone rise from the dead, but we've had this, this is Satan's new tool. Hey, this, this eight-year-old went to heaven, and here he is to tell you all about it. People don't buy into the gospel. They're, they want to be comforted and know they're going to heaven, but they don't want to buy into the true gospel. The true gospel is found in the word of God. In Luke 24, 47, in John 5, I think it's verse 37, it might be wrong, but Jesus says that the Old Testament, this is what he's talking about here, the Old Testament speaks of me. Take people through Isaiah 53. Take people through Psalm 22. Take people to Genesis 3.15. Tell them that a Redeemer has come to save them. Share with them the word of God from the gospel and then let God control the rest. Right? God will do the rest. I spoke to this Tom and I you know, tried to give him the gospel and shared the scriptures, shared the verses, invited him to come to church. Now it's up to God. I can go to sleep well at night because I told Tom. What is the second part of the solution? Even the man in hell knows. Even the man in hell knows. What does he say the solution is? Can you find it? What's the last thing we're going to say here? What's the man's solution? He knows it's found in Moses and the prophets. And the man who is in Hades is now wanting to be the best evangelist there ever was. And he even knows what the message should be. You see it? Someone said it. Repent. See it at the very end? Look at what he says. Verse 27, let's, let's hear this guy's anguish. He said, I beg you, Father, send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so he may warn them, lest they also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, oh, they have the scriptures. They can hear them. And the man argues, no, Father Abraham. If someone gives 
goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He knows that's what it takes. It takes the acknowledgement of sin and the desire to turn from it. And the guy says, nope. The Scripture is the power in the Gospel, not this miraculous sign of even someone raising from the dead. And so if this man was a real man, and it's hard to say if this was a parable or not, I tend to believe maybe it was a real man because he doesn't introduce it as a parable and he names the guy. He's still in hell. I'm always... um, I'm always shaken a little bit when I do a funeral for someone who's died and you know they're without Christ. I've always... I've told this before, but we used to have a church. Our church used to be right across from Lapeer Regional Hospital. and Because we were close, we were often called when someone was in the ER dying and the desire was for the pastor to come over and pray the person into heaven. I remember numerous times. I mean, that probably happened... A hundred times. We just, I would just walk back to the church and it might be a beautiful day. Might see kids riding roller skates, people playing basketball, car going by with a canoe on it, everybody just living life. And this person just went into eternity. I, I can never, every time it happened, I just never get over it. But especially when I knew the person was going to hell. I don't think it's too strong to say that if this does not consume your thoughts, then you're thinking about the wrong things. If you're not consumed in thought, C.S. Lewis once said, every soul we meet is an immortal being. They, they They will exist somewhere forever. And if you are not consumed with that, then you're thinking about the wrong things. Colossians 3, seek those things which are above. Set your mind on things above, not on this earth. We are dazzled by things that are perishing. 12 million people tomorrow have already decided that they're not going to work because they want to watch the series finale of some TV show. Dazzled by the world. God has given us every good thing to enjoy. He's given us lots of wonderful gifts. But sometimes those gifts distract us from what should be our true mission. And I hope this peak into eternity has really changed us. It's really affected me. I hope you... Let's bow our heads to pray. I don't know what else to say, Father, except that you would seal these truths to our heart. While your heads are bowed and eyes are closed, hardly ever do this, but I feel like it's important in today's lesson. I ask that nobody be stirring or moving around. If there's a person in here today that says, um, I, don't, I don't know for sure that I'm a Christian, I don't think I've ever done this in the history of our church. But in a minute, I'm going to ask you to raise your hand. And we're not going to ask you to come forward. We're not going to ask for an invitation. But it's just so that you can, in this moment, admit that you need to talk to somebody about it. And even by doing that, no one's going to embarrass you. I'm not going to say, oh, look, so-and-so raised their hand, and let's pray for them right now. You will not be called out or embarrassed. Everyone is looking down. Everyone is praying for people who may not be saved. But when I say in just a minute, if you're not sure you're saved and you would like to talk to me, if you're scared of me, we can have you talk to another person. We can have you talk to um, maybe someone who brought you or an an adult that you trust if you're a child or a friend. But you just have been moved and challenged to think, I I don't know if I know Christ. 
Is there anybody in here who would raise their hand and say, I'm not sure that I'm a Christian? Raise your hand now if you're not sure. No one's looking around. Okay, thank you so much. I want to pray for you in just a minute. Is there anybody else? And one more thing. I wish you would encourage me today, and even unless it's, unless it's not true, you say, man, this is... This has moved me. This has shaken me because I've seen what eternity is and I have, not, I have not done what I should in regards to the sharing of the gospel and by God's help, by God's help, I want to, I want to share the gospel more. And even in the course of this lesson, he's brought someone to your mind or something that you've not done or something that you can do better and I want to pray for you. So again, with no one looking around, is there anybody that say, Andy, please pray for me in my new attempt to be committed to sharing the gospel? Is there anybody like that? Thank you so much. You had a lot of people. Appreciate that. Appreciate that. We rarely do this, but this is such, this is such a sobering passage to me. Father, I pray for this one who raised their hand. I pray that you would save their soul even today. God, I pray that you'd help me be more passionate about sharing my faith with other people. I see these people at Speedway. I see these people at the bank every single day. I see as it's getting nice out, I see our neighbors, Josh and Jerry and Sandy and Bob and the other Sandy, these people who live 15-second walk from our church. And I pray that you give me the boldness to share the gospel with them, other people in my life that, that are destined for hell. And I know you're sovereign in salvation, we all know that, but, but there might be opportunities for each one of us. So many raise their hands, so grateful that everybody in here feels this same burden. God, we just, we pray that you would make us bold shares of the gospel. We know the results are yours, but oftentimes I think we'd all admit that we miss these opportunities because we're afraid we, we really don't want to offend people, and that's a good thing, but sometimes truth needs to be shared. Would you just blow open holes of conversation? Even this week, I know that probably many people like me have had people come to mind that need the gospel, and, and our hearts would just break to, to know that they're in eternity in hell forever. So just make clear opportunities for us, even in the next few days. And when we have them, let us charge through them boldly, praying that you will bring fruit. God, please save souls in our community this summer. When we gather together for our Labor Day outreach, may there be a, a handful of people, new Christians, that have come just recently to know Christ and their destination changed because when it's over, God, that word fixed is so stark and startling. There is no change. Please use this little congregation to advance this kingdom in this place, in this town, and make your gospel come alive in the hearts of people, we pray. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's have Leah come.